welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast for Wednesday, July 12, 2017. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. Today I'm delighted to be joined by a friend of mine with whom I've previously appeared on PAX East panels. She is the communications officer, co-founder, game designer, and public relations director for Phoenix Online Studios, as well as a contributing writer to 411mania.com. Welcome to Polygamer, Katie Hallahan. Hello. How are you, Katie? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm delighted to be chatting with you. It has been two and a half years since we appeared on stage together at PAX East talking about the resurgence and popularity of point-and-click adventure games. I can't believe it's been so long. I know, me neither. It seems like it has not been nearly that long. I know, and I really have to give you credit for really putting that panel together. I was the one who submitted it and moderated it, but you rec- you connected me with both panelists, Dave Gilbert and Steve Alexander. Without the three of you, I would have been up there alone. So thank you so much. Yeah, I, I'm glad it worked out. I've known both those guys for, for years through the adventure game community, so it was fun to get to do something together like that. So what is this adventure game community? Are there just a bunch of developers who get together in a back room once a month and chat about the good old days? <laughs> the community is more online-based. A lot of us you know, know each other a lot through Twitter or Facebook or just uh, in the older days through various forums that everyone would go to to talk about adventure games or fan remakes and that sort of thing that were getting made. Uh, and this, we've all sort of kind of grown uh, into being commercial developers for the most part. Some of us started that way. <laughs> Uh, in a few cases. Right, because if I, if I understand it correctly, Phoenix Online Studios didn't launch as a commercial developer. You were just a bunch of fans who were missing the King's Quest games, of which the latest one had come out in 1998 at the time. So about mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago, you and some friends got together and said, let's make our own King's Quest game and put together the label Phoenix Online Studios by which to publish it. Is that sort of the synopsis? That is that is definitely the short version, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I make it sound so easy. Yeah, I know. I I also can't believe that was like 15 years ago now, which is crazy. (laughs) Because that also feels like, oh, we've been doing this for maybe five, ten years. It's like, oh gosh, it's been way longer than that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's been a good chunk of our lives that Phoenix Online Studios has existed. So you have really grown Phoenix Online Studios so much more from its foundings, and its origin story, the long version, can be found online. You've told that story before. I won't make you repeat yourself. Mm-hmm. But you have you have since gone on to work with such renowned developers as Jane Jensen on games like Cognition, the Erica Reed thriller, and w- as well as a remake of the original Gabriel Knight game, which a lot of fans from the 80s just adore. How was it that you evolved Phoenix Online Studios from just a self-published fan game to this empire? <laughs> uh, empire is a strong word. Uh, that's why I quite <laughs> used that one. don't want to be talking too big for, for my britches here. Yeah, a lot of it was just, you know, uh, perseverance. And, you know, we were doing something we really loved. And, uh, you know, at, the more we got into making the silver lining and really enjoying that, you know, for a lot of us, that was the, the thing we were doing that we really enjoyed, even though, you know, there was no payments involved and we were, spending all our spare time doing this instead. Uh, so it came to the point where it was like, okay, you know what? We're, we're doing this. We're doing well. We're getting good reactions. We've got a pretty good following for this game. Um, and we've got our own original ideas that we would love to make into, into games. So let's go for it. And we had that uh, in mind for a couple of years. And then finally, kind of after we were releasing the first few episodes of TSL, 
it became just the right time to finally try. And that was when we went and uh, did our Kickstarter for Cognition, which is our first commercial game. Um, that was late 2011. And then, yeah, since then, just a lot of putting in the time every day during the day now so that we can keep open and keep making games and, and publishing games. So I mentioned all these titles that you have at Phoenix Online Studios, communications officer, game designer, etc. <laughs> what were you doing when you first launched Phoenix Online Studios? Because I imagine there was probably a lot of grunt work to do as far as like graphic design or programming, audio, voice acting, etc. Were you down in the code working on this stuff? Uh, no, I am not a programmer. <laughs> um, was, that is kind of one of those useful skills that now I sort of wish maybe back in college I had picked up uh, or try to pick up something of it. But um, even if I tried that, I'm not sure that I would be that good at it. It's just not my particular forte. But uh, I've been a writer uh, and designer since I joined way back in the day. And uh, from there, it just sort of grew into, uh, you know, the, as you said, the many hats that I'm wearing now, which honestly, everyone at Phoenix, and I think probably anyone at any indie developer can tell you, you know, it's it's definitely a, a job where you wear many hats and a lot of times, you know, if there's something that needs to get done uh, and you've got any sort of inclination towards whatever that particular task is, you kind of learn how to do it as you go because uh, someone's got to do it. So, but yeah, I, I, I am not artistically gifted and I am not a programmer, but uh, I can write and I can talk to people. So that was sort of how the, you know, I moved into uh, you know, being a designer and doing the PR and the communications officer part of it. So I know we could probably do a whole episode on this, but roughly, what does it mean to be a game designer? So I, I feel like this is a question you would, might get a different answer from different people on, because um, for some, it'll involve more of, you know, the, as you said, in the trenches, you know, programming and putting all the pieces together technically. Uh, so, but for, for me personally, it's about writing the story of the game, you know, figuring out not just what the, you know, what people are saying and what the puzzles are, it's all of that, but just also, you know, what is the story that you want to tell, um, which is my kind of first love because, you know, I always wanted to be a writer when I was growing up. Um, and then I, I encountered adventure games. It was great for me. I loved it because it was like I was playing a book. Uh, and so that was what drew me to that. And the idea of making those was kind of always this little pipe dream that I had in the back of my head, but I didn't really think I would actually end up doing uh, so when I got the opportunity to do that, it kind of literally was a dream come true. <laughs> so, so that's so to me the the big focus is is finding the best way to tell a story and kind of bring the player into that story, have them you know how to get them interested in the plot that's going on and the characters that are involved in it, and, and moving forward and figuring out you know what are the next steps, uh, unraveling whatever the mystery of the particular game is going to be. I think we're of about the same age, and I, too, wanted to grow up to make video games and work in the games industry. When I was in high school, I thought that meant going to college and learning how to program and actually make the games. There was no awareness back then of the need for other assets, the, the need for the humanities and the arts and the literature. Now the school I went to has a whole program in interactive media and game design. It's so encouraging to know that there are all these other skills and so many other entry points into this passion. Yeah, yeah, there are. And I love, I've been liking, um, I've been, it's been great to see that uh, more and more schools are basically, yeah, coming up with those sorts of things that are finding out you know, it is more than just, uh, than just programming um, or even, or even just writing or just having a, you know, a cool visual aesthetic and so forth. You know, it, games themselves have really evolved to where it's a lot of different 
pieces coming together to tell that story, to create that experience, whatever it is that you want to have. What does it mean to be a game designer when you're working on a remake of a game like Gabriel Knight? Since the story is pretty much already there, there must still be a lot of work that needs to be done to update a 30-year-old game. Oh, yeah. Um, 20-year-old. <laughs> oh, sorry. The 20th anniversary edition, no problem. <laughs> yeah, for the remake, yeah, it, it was very different. Um, I mean, we were working with Jane, which was awesome. She was fantastic to work with, and yeah, she was also really excited to revisit Gabriel Knight um, and sort of, you know, take this game that everyone, a lot of people had really loved and, you know, kind of reintroduce it to a new generation and also, you know, kind of clean up and tweak some of the parts of it as well. Uh, so she found uh, her original design Bible, basically, and went through that. And it was a lot of, you know, reviewing and reminding herself what were all the particulars of all the steps of the puzzles and everything. And then for the, uh, for so a lot of the assets, of course, we, Obviously, we couldn't use a lot of things because, you know, the game was much older and, you know, things like sound files and graphics and whatnot, all those were being updated or the originals were long lost. So there wasn't really an option to use them. But uh, so, for example, like, you know, the, the scripts for what the lines were, since you were going to be doing new voice acting, we actually had a program that had that pulled all of the dialogue, the written dialogue out of the old game engine. And so it was just these huge spreadsheets of just all of the lines of dialogue. And um, one of my tasks was going through them and first figuring out like, okay, which numbers refer to which characters speaking and then kind of, you know, doing a, a find replace. So it was like, oh, okay, if it's a one, it's Gabriel, if it's two, it's Grace, so forth. And then kind of reordering the dialogue into a script that could be used for recording. So um, that was a, a, certainly a long task, but um, it was uh, it was interesting to look through a lot of it and Occasionally, there would be things in there that were interesting, like either lines that got cut or uh, just lines that were kind of directions to either a programmer or something like that, uh, or like things that were like, I guess they had made a demo at one point and those some directions in there were still existing in the game. So kind of neat to see a lot of those little tidbits coming through. But uh, so yes, design-wise, I mean, the game stayed largely the way it was. It was the events of the game that takes place over 10 days were shifted around somewhat so that the uh, amount you do on each day was a little more even uh, in the first in the original there were some days that were particularly long and then other days where you really only had to do maybe like three or four things to kind of get to the next day already so with the idea in mind that this might uh, and it eventually did of course uh, be kind of split up into pieces for um, a mobile download uh, we evened out the the workload basically of what you're doing each day so that you know you weren't Basically, so someone wasn't, you know, if you're paying, you know, $2.99 for this pack of days, which is days, you know, like two through four or whatever. And also it's like, hey, I did a lot of stuff here, but on this next one, I did almost nothing, but it cost the same. And so we didn't want people to feel like they were getting, you know, ripped off or something like that if uh, if they were buying it. Yeah, so that, that was probably the major thing. Um, and then a lot of it was just, you know, looking at the original and figuring out, you know, what a, a newer high-res, uh, you know, 3D you know, glamorized version of it, if you will, um, would look like or, or sound like uh, and how to kind of update the gameplay a little bit for today's audience. So you did all this work to update Gabriel Knight. And although you did have to reverse engineer a lot of it, it was quite the boon to be working with the original designer, Jane Jensen. How did you convince her <laughs> that Phoenix Online Studios was the right one to work on this? Because I'm sure that this is a property that she holds near and dear to her heart after 
co-designing King's Quest VI. Gabriel Knight was the first game she solo designed. And if somebody came up to me and asked to just, you know, inherit my legacy while I was still alive, I would be very protective of it. We had our, um, our relationship with Jane started a couple years before this. Uh, she was a creative consultant on our game Cognition, uh, which basically kind of meant she would, um, she reviewed our, our Cesar and myself and, and our assistant designer, Nick, review our designs, you know, go from the outline stage and then go through the actual script and do an editing pass on that and just kind of really helped tighten up a lot of the moments uh, and give us advice and like, you know, hey, this might work better here instead, that sort of thing. So it was it was great to have her, her guidance on that, but at the same time, it was great because she also, you know, the game is still very much ours, you know, she let it be our game. It wasn't, you know, trying to take control of that one or anything. Um, so she was great to work with there. Uh, and then we got to, she did the Kickstarter um, a little about, a little while later for Pinkerton Road Studio. Uh, and we were the uh, developer that she was going to be working with on the new game she was doing, Mobius. While that Kickstarter was going on, the announcement came that she also had gotten the license from Activision to do a remake of Gabriel Knight 1. So that was kind of packaged into the Kickstarter. Technically, that wasn't the one being funded by the Kickstarter. It was Mobius, and Activision was kind of letting Gabriel Knight be part of the reward packages for that. So our development relationship with her started with Mobius, uh, and then partway through, in sort of in the early, while we were working on that, where when the early stages of Gabriel Knight were being worked on sort of the, the updating of the design Bible and uh, the working, you know, working out the scripts and stuff that I was talking about. Uh, and then, so she was kind of deciding what studio to go with for this. Um, and I mean, in our case, like, you know, we had a good relationship with her and yeah, we got a chance to show her that we, we wanted this game, you know, we wanted to do right by her um, with Gabriel Knight, you know, that we, we loved this game. Um, our CEO, Cesar in particular, like it was the just the game he idolized, and Jane was you know the designer that he idolized, and his uh, his his fanboyingness of her was essentially how we ended up meeting her because he kind of, as I used to say, you know there, there was no one he couldn't stalk down online somehow. So so yeah, you know I, I think she got to see that we respected the the original, um, and we wanted to make a remake of it, you know the best that it could be, and. And the original really was a big influence on the games that we were making now. So, Thank you for clarifying that timeline. I'm not sure I realized that you had already worked with her on multiple projects before the topic of a Gabriel Knight remake was broached. That must have made things a lot easier because you knew each other both personally and professionally. She knew what you were capable of, and you knew that you worked well together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mobius and GK did overlap a lot. Um, So even my memory, honestly, of like, which one came first, you know, chicken or egg. But they, I, I know like, as far as an order of development and in the end uh, was that, you know, we worked on Mobius and then as that one was wrapping up, GK kind of ramped up a lot more. So there was a lot of that going on at the same time. But, uh, but yeah, so, but yes, we had, we had met her in person, um, was it earlier in 2011 and kind of talked about maybe working together on something. Uh, and then Cognition came up and that was sort of a great sort of uh, entryway into it because you know we could work with her but it wasn't since she wasn't full-time back to developing on her own at the time it was sort of a good you know kind of starting small in a way that you know we we could just show her what we were doing and what we could do 
Uh, and, you know, she was able to contribute um, in a way that just that worked out for both sides, really. I'm surprised she was able to retain the rights for Gabriel Knight from Activision because Activision is a major studio and Gabriel Knight did, as far as I know, quite well when it was originally released. It doesn't seem like a big studio would be so eager to relinquish the rights to a property that they may return to at some point. To be clear, you know, Activision does still own it. Essentially, you know, she had a, a license. Uh, agreement to to do this remake. So I mean, I think from their end, that was you know at the point where a lot of the a lot of the designers from sort of that golden age of adventures were coming back into the limelight, especially through Kickstarter. And I think Activision, I would imagine, um, you know, saw a chance for getting into that game, if you will, <laughs> with one of the original designers of a game that yes had done well. Uh, and you know, not too long afterwards, the odd gentleman announced their King's Quest remake that they were doing. And uh, they kind of did their, their little relaunch of the Sierra line, or the Sierra brand name anyways. Right, because Sierra and Activision are companies that you have had your own encounters with as far as <laughs> you know, property rights and legalities and contracts. Yes, you go. have. <laughs> Again, I won't make you rehash the entire story, but <laughs> the silver lining was originally entitled King's Quest Nine because King's Quest Eight was the last official one. And Vivendi right. Games, who owned the rights, said no, and they were owned by Activision, and then this and that. And how many different companies have you fought with to make this game exist? <laughs> Technically, two. So it was Vivendi owned it themselves uh, a, a while back, like 2005, I think, and they sent us a cease and desist. And uh, you know, our, our fans were awesome. They helped write a petition. We kind of sent like videos and explanations of what we were doing and so forth to Vivendi, and we were able to come to an agreement to get a fan license from them, which was basically, you know, you can release this for free, and you have our permission. Just you know, don't make any money off of it. And they did ask us at that time to change the title and take King's Quest out of it. Uh, which is when it officially became the Silver Lining. And then a few years later, uh, Activision bought Vivendi. And so by the time we were ready to release the first episode, we went to our old contact and they were like, oh no, you have to talk to Activision now. They had no idea what we were talking about. So they sent us a cease and desist order. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Just to them, you know, they had no idea. And they were like, what, these people want to do a thing with our property? No, of course not. So, I mean, it, it makes sense entirely from their point of view. Um, that they did. And, and again, they were, you know, we, we kind of, our fans again were awesome and rallied into the petitions and whatnot and letters and phone calls a second time, which we always thought was amazing because we really did not expect that at that point. And yeah, we were able to, again, work out a fan license agreement with them, which was really the first time they had done that. And sort of, I think once they understood what we were doing and what we were definitely not trying to do, which was, you know, say that this was an official game or try to sell it for money and so forth. They were great to work with on that. Um, and were great to work with when we were you know, working with them and Jane for uh, getting GK out as well. It's really surprising to hear that because these fan licenses are industry-wide pretty unusual and with some companies unprecedented, especially, for example, you see Square taking down these Chrono Trigger fan games. You see Nintendo taking down fan games like they did last summer with uh, Metroid 2 Remake. Of course, it turned out that they were working on their own remake and so they didn't want people infringing on their <laughs> brand, their property. And yet here's Activision saying... <laughs> Yes, we are one of the biggest publishers and developers in the industry, but you can still make a fan game. That is surprising. Yeah, uh, that was kind of why when, when it happened with Activision, we were surprised we didn't expect that at first. Uh, Vivendi had done a few similar licenses with some other King's Quest remakes. So when they came to us with the cease and desist, we weren't totally surprised. And, but we knew there was some precedent for them you know, working with people on, on these things. And that's why, yeah, when Activision sent that to us we were like well crap 
this is it. Um, you know, there's, you know, landing isn't going to strike twice, right? But apparently it can. <laughs> you know, at the time, I don't think they had plans to do anything with the, um, with the franchise. And uh, obviously that changed over the next few years, kind of, you know, adventure game remakes became, you know, the, the new hot thing, so to speak. <laughs> I imagine if it had come up at a time later on when they were already planning to do their own reboot of the series, then, you know, you may well have gotten a different answer. And I could totally understand why, although it would have been a shame. So at what point did you find out that they were working on their own new game, the one developed by The Odd Gentleman that just has come out episodically over the last year or two? Did they, did they let you know before the press, like, hey, ps, we're working on this thing that's uh, the official continuation? We hope it doesn't interfere with your unofficial continuation? really we found out i kind of through like some some industry grapevine chatter um a little bit before it was officially announced but no we, we hadn't heard about it before then um which you know it, it would have been great to you know have a chance to to pitch our own version for a remake but on the other hand you know maybe they kind of thought you know well these guys are doing a fan thing and we want to maybe separate this from that you know and not have the, the fan game that they've made be seen as an official part of it so it's yeah, one of those things where it's like well it's kind of a shame, but I, I do understand, you know, probably where they were coming from in that. But nonetheless, the creation of this official continuation at no point jeopardized the silver lining? Uh, no. No, no. I mean, most of our game was out already. Um, so we've already ha always had this, well, not always, but uh, we've, you know, for the majority of, of the silver lining's uh, development in life, we've had this plan of, you know, these five episodes and four of them had already come out by then and this fifth one has just been the one that's kind of been the uh, something of the albatross <laughs> around our neck uh, over the last few years, trying to kind of slowly get that out while we're also working on commercial game. It seems kind of like Zeno's paradox. The closer you get to completing the silver lining, the farther away it becomes. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> There's always something. But the fifth and final episode of the silver lining will finally be coming out later this year? Yes, later this year. Um, that could well mean, you know, uh, 11.59 on December 31st, maybe, but <laughs> it will be this year. <laughs> Remind me what platforms that's for? Uh, so this one will be for certainly PC and Mac, probably be able to do it for Linux as well, uh, which will be different from the first four episodes because they were done in a totally different engine. Uh, we're now working with Unity as, to, as opposed to before we were working with an engine called Torque, which wasn't made for adventure games at all. It was very much like, it was very much hacked together to work for what we wanted it to do. But we work with Unity now, and that's kind of one of the reasons um, it's taken a while. Was, you know, we were switching to a new engine, and we had to sort of do various code changes and anticipate a lot of that. And they had to sort of rebuild the structure of the game in this, because, you know, we've had, we have in this one, you know, the five icon interface, which is different from what we did for Cognition. And we wanted to keep that interface consistent between the episodes, at the very least, even though the engine was changing. But yeah, the, the one of the nice parts is that we can port to other platforms a lot more easily. So I can see the advantage to switching platforms or development engines in between games, but in between episodes of one game, you're already 80% <laughs> done the King's Quest. Why not just finish that last 20% in the old engine? I think basically, you know, we, well, for one thing, um, Torque was no longer supported by the people who made it. So any problems we had or any fixes we needed, like, uh, would not be coming. Um, it was also going to be easier to port to other platforms. And just as we were using it for, uh, for Cognition and Mobius and Gabriel Knight, just it's so much easier to use, basically. You know, you don't have, we didn't have to rely on 
the one or two people who knew what all the lines of code were and you know, and having them go in there to hard code things um, as opposed to Unity. I don't think I'm not a programmer, but I know a little bit about uh, how it works with Unity and that it certainly is a lot easier. Um, there are even steps in that engine, for example, like there's things that I can do with my lack of knowledge <laughs> to, uh, to go in and kind of help put together interactions in a scene and so forth, which uh, back with the Torque engine would never have been the case. So since Linux users will now be able to play the fifth chapter in that operating system, but not the first four, are you going to go back and redo the first four? Uh, no, that would involve you know, another <laughs> another 15 years worth of work. Actually. Right. There are some very enterprising people in our forums who over the, you know, when we were releasing the first ones and they were Mac and Linux users, uh, you know, they came up with a lot of fixes basically for how to run it successfully with a Windows emulator. And people have had you know, a lot of, you know, good luck following those directions. So generally, when someone comes to us and asks about that, we have to be like, you know, sorry, we're not going to be able to port it. But, uh, you know, here are some ways that people have gotten it to work. And, and generally speaking, that, that works out for them. So when you say Unity is easier to port, does that mean we'll be seeing mobile versions of the silver lining? Um, I don't know. We have, uh, you know, our agreement, which lets us release it, you know, through our website, essentially. So I, I'm not sure if we'd ever been put episode five up on other places. I'm, I would certainly be kind of interested in the idea, but that would definitely be something we'd have to talk with Activision and see what they would say about that. This reminds me of Cognition and Erica Rethriller, which was released in four parts. The first two were for iOS and the latter two were not. Is that correct? That is. Um, we keep, that's, that's another one of the projects that we keep needing to come back to to finally release that those two uh, on there. And I think that had to do with, you know, uh, our Mac expert at the time or our, our Mac expert who was there for, you know, kind of the iOS port export expert. <laughs> I think he um, he left uh, around that time and we were kind of just focusing head down on, you know, the, the PC Mac version. And uh, then a little while later, we did the update for the game of the year version, which had a bunch of bonus material. So kind of our goal now is to we'd like to at some point, you know, get those last two episodes onto iOS, also update the first two to include all of the, you know, the new bonus material that you can get, and then also do an Android version at the same time. Because I can totally see a world where you released it for multiple platforms, Steam and mobile, and after the first couple of episodes, you're gathering data and analytics after each incremental release, and you're seeing which versions are selling and which are not, and that you might decide not to proceed with iOS. I, you know, not having gone into this interview yet, I kind of thought that might be why we hadn't seen the iOS versions yet, is because it wasn't worth it. Mm. Really? I, I mean, I don't know them off the top of my head, but um, no, from my understanding, or from what I can you know, think of, that's, that's never come up for Cognition. Yeah, for that one, you know, the, it was doing pretty well. Um, I think we learned from later mobile releases kind of some ways that we wish we'd done it differently. Like, it would have been better to kind of package them all into one app and then do in-app purchases, for example, so that as opposed to right now, the way Cognition is in the iOS store, you know, episode one and episode two are two totally different applications that you have to download. But at this point, you know, it's, that's kind of is what it is on the, um, on the app store. So not really much changing that now, but probably if when we get the Android version out, I think we'll do more of the in-app purchase version instead. I appreciate that you're limited in which platforms you can release Gabriel Knight and the Silver Lining, perhaps due to contractual obligations. But with your own games, do you have any desire to see them on consoles? That's one of the things that it would always, it would be really cool. I think porting, um, Adventure games to consoles, I think, can be tricky uh, because, you know, obviously it's got a very different control scheme 
and just and also there's a different audience not that i don't think there is an audience isn't an audience for it out there but i think consoles as a whole that's not usually the kind of game we'll go to it for so that that has been a thing that we've been interested in just we've never quite gotten the you know the time and, and man hours available to really look into it and, and put a lot of the effort into it. So definitely it's, it's out there, I think, for possibly happening in the future. I don't know that the back, you know, the, the back catalog would be put out there, but possibly if we, if we finally get that to happen and, you know, find a good way to sort of make it work well on consoles, then yeah, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> I do appreciate that a point-and-click adventure game works well with an interface that makes it easy to point and click or tap and click. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. something, something like the Wii U, for example. But I haven't played it. Thimbleweed Park came out for Xbox One and is coming out for Nintendo Switch. So there are precedents for this working. How well, I can't say, but they are releasing these games for consoles. Hmm. Um, I, think, I think I kind of remember hearing that about Thimbleweed Park now, Thimbleweed Park, uh, which I actually... Just recently got for my PC, so yeah, it, it is possible that because the that was more recently designed, maybe they were able to kind of anticipate that a little more. I keep thinking of like a lot of the some of the earlier Telltale games, like when they did their Monkey Island game. Um, I played that. I think I played that on Xbox, I think. Maybe it was PS3, and it was the controls were a little bit awkward for kind of having that point and click. And I think for a while companies that were porting to there or putting out there games that were, you know, the style were trying to figure out how to make it work. And I think, you know, the later Telltale games, of course, like Walking Dead and Game of Thrones and so forth, you know, they've kind of, I think they've gotten it down a lot better now, um, how to make that work and, and feel natural. So you've worked with not only Activision, Jane Jensen, numerous other luminaries, but also other indie developers like Steve Alexander from Quest for Infamy. You publish his games, is that correct? Uh, we published one of their games, Quest for Infamy, and then Order of the Thorn, they self-published. With Phoenix Online Studios basically being its own indie studio, and it, there are so many tools available with which to crowdfund and publish your own games, what are the services that Phoenix Online Studios brings to somebody like Steve who wants to publish his game? He has published his own games. Why did he choose P Phoenix Online for one of them? I think for... Starting off, so we actually originally went with a different publisher for Cognition. Uh, we were just going to do the development. Uh, and then we went with them, and it just didn't quite work out. It wasn't a great fit. And we, you know, we realized that on both sides, us and them. So we parted ways with them, you know, in a friendly manner. Um, and from there, we went and decided, like, okay, we're going to go do this ourselves um, for the rest of the episodes here. And we were basically took back the first one, if you will. So we're going to go and self-publish these. So that was basically a lot of legwork of like talking to the people from the different websites where uh, we had had it listed and sort of building relationships with these other stores going through Steam Greenlight when it was first out, which was a frustrating process. <laughs> but once we finally got through all of that, which was shortly after I think we announced that the fourth episode was coming, um, we finally got Greenlit on there. So we had the entire episode Entire series, uh, series, season rather, was available when we went with uh, the fourth episode on Steam, and it's kind of we realized at that point that doing all of the work with communicating with these stores, getting them what they needed, um, you know, listing things and so forth, uh, was a lot of work, uh, and it was certainly something that you know we hadn't anticipated quite how much work it would be, and at that point we realized you know, like, well, hey, 
maybe we can help other studios that have that are indie developers that haven't published yet that don't have these relationships built and don't want to have to focus on that but want to focus on just you know the part of making their games and we can help get them into these stores so that's kind of where that idea came from and we sort of did a, a soft test of that with face noir um about a year 2013 i think um so about a year after we had finished publishing cognition or a few months actually because cognition went until like late 2012 that went really well and then in 2014 we decided to go ahead and uh, open up the publishing branch officially and we had a, a number of games that we kind of announced with that point and quest for infamy was one of them we had known those guys since they were doing their own King, king's quest and space quest remakes uh, as fan games and this was their first you know push out with their um their own commercial game as well so it was kind of a it made sense basically i think <laughs> in a way um you know we had kind of done a little bit more of the legwork because we had started just a little bit sooner into going into a commercial game. So it was, you know, great to be able to work with them in that capacity and, and help them and other developers. And so that's kind of the big thing I think I would say. And then, you know, there's a lot of littler, smaller steps in there. You know, we help with QA testing and sometimes, you know, doing design feedback, depending on where the game is when we start working with the developer and then all the you know, PR and marketing stuff that's involved in the follow-up as well. Does Phoenix Online Studios publish point-and-click adventures exclusively? Um, mostly. We have one or two games that are a different style. Uh, specifically, there's um, Quest Run and Heroes and Legends. They're two games that are made by the same developer, and they're very similar in style. Um, those are kind of the most different ones that we have because they're a little more... They're a little more like RPGs and there is less of a story involved in them. So I'd say we, over time, we've kind of come to realize that basically, you know, the point and click adventure or the, the story focused games do a lot better for us. Um, you know, it's what our audience is interested in, what they're looking for. And, you know, the other two, it, it kind of worked out, but they, you know, they didn't do as well as the other games that we had. So I would say we wouldn't say no to doing something that isn't necessarily a strictly an adventure game but just it's worked a lot better and if it's a, if it's a game that doesn't have a strong story involved in the gameplay then it just you know it, it tends to be kind of a situation of like you know this looks cool but you know I, I think it's gonna be better for both of us if you find someone else who can put this out there so you've worked with all these different studios. You've tried these different genres to see what fits with Phoenix Online Studios. You yourself have played multiple roles at Phoenix Online Studios, communications, game design, public relations. Well, first of all, I need to ask, is this what you do for a living? Is this your day job? Basically. I, um, I do have kind of some other things going on and uh, as far as you know, getting, getting the bills paid because while I do love doing this, it is not the, uh, the most financially <laughs> uh, affluent <laughs> industry uh doing indie games it does seem to be the thing that takes up the most of your time as far as work goes yeah of all the roles you have played in this significant time investment what is your favorite thing to do what is it that gets you out of bed and says i can't wait to go to work at phoenix online studios today because today i'm i get to do x say i mean i i love certainly um coming up with stories and designing games that's a lot of fun. Like I said, you know, I always wanted to be a writer and, and it's a, a different kind of writing than just, you know, straight prose or novel writing or something, but it's, it's really fulfilling. And I, I love doing that. And it is genuinely uh, exciting for me to kind of help other games get out there. You know, when we're 
actually coming up to and doing a release and I get to see all the, you know, fan reactions for the games and see the press reviews and stuff. And it just, it feels great to be able to talk to those other people in the industry um, or talk to the people who are supporting our industry because they love their game and just kind of feel that sort of, you know, that nice warm, fuzzy feeling of, uh, Hey, you've done a great job. You've helped, you know, uh, get this, this thing out there that someone worked really hard on um, and that other people are really enjoying. And it's, it's just it's a really good feeling. <laughs> So I hear two things in there. You love writing and you love helping other games get published. If somebody wanted to get started as a game designer, as a narrative designer, doing that part of your job, what would you recommend they do? Did you go to school and study English literature? Is that how you get started? Uh, yeah, I had I studied uh, English in undergrad. Um, I kind of focused on writing as much as I could. Um, I didn't uh, have the actual like official concentration in it, but I took as many of the classes as I could. I mean, these days I would say, you know, look into, you know, a college that offers kind of classes in that. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's a competitive industry and it is often difficult to break into. So, I mean, learn as much as you can about the steps involved. Um, if you can learn programming, do. <laughs> um, that's a skill that, you know, I, as I said, I, I kind of wish that I had been able to at least take a stab at i'm not sure if i ever would have mastered it but it's the thing i would have liked to know more about but yeah you know if you want to be involved in the writing and the narrative design of it you know focus on learning as much as you can about those things and if you want to you know get noticed as you're applying to jobs at different companies you know maybe look into making your own game for free they don't have to be huge things there's so many tools that are out there that you can get for free or that you can get for very low cost uh, you know, like Unity even has a, a free version, a personal edition that you can use to start making games there. You know, but, and they don't have to be, as I said, they don't have to be like, you know, these big hours long sweeping epics, you know, make a little one room game where you find some stuff or, or something, you interact with a few things. And basically, as much as you can stretch your legs in what you want to do, the better you're going to be at it. And if you're, you know, using that to apply to jobs, you can say, you know, hey, here's this thing that I made. Here are the things I did and what I learned from it. Yeah, it's it is difficult, but I think if it's if it's really what you love, it's very rewarding. I will definitely agree with your recommendation to learn some programming, even if you're not going to be a programmer, because not only does it teach logical thinking, it also teaches you a language that is known by a lot of people you'll be interacting with. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I didn't end up being a game programmer, but I went on to work at as an editor at Computer World magazine and also to host the Indiesider podcast where I was interviewing game developers. And just from the few computer science classes I took, that gave me a big leg up on just being a part of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I even though I I as I said I don't have to get into it myself, but knowing a few things about it and just being able to understand what their people are saying when they sing, you know, like, oh, X, Y, Z is happening when I'm trying to do this. Or, you know, if you're, if you're doing design work and you're trying to, you know, lay out how you want uh, a scene or a sequence to look or how you want it to go, it helps to know even just a little bit about what the tools are that are used to make that happen so that you can, you know, kind of even just nudge people in that direction. It's sort of the same thing for giving feedback on you know, animations or art because um, I've done some directing of the episodes that, that we've put out. And to be able to look at that and say, you know, like, okay, here's what I like about it. Here's what I would like to be changed. To be able to say that in the language that 
they work with and that they understand really helps just to be able to do that. And it helps get things done a lot faster as well. (laughs) So we just gave a lot of great advice on not only how to become a writer, but also how to make games. If somebody wanted specifically to create a point and click adventure game, what resources do you recommend? Um, Well, certainly, uh, you know, play point and click adventure games. So you know what you're, what you're looking at. Especially the ones by Phoenix Online Studios. Yes, especially ours. They're great. <laughs> uh, but especially, I mean, if you're interested in that, you probably already know those things. Because um, yeah. I don't think anyone's like, you know, yeah, I'm going to play it. I'm going to make one of these, even though I have no idea what it is. It doesn't, doesn't seem to happen <laughs> that way. But, you know, and pay attention to what you like and what you don't like about them as you play them. Uh, you know, kind of learn from others' mistakes and others' victories. Um, you know, if you see a thing and you're like, you know, oh, this is cool, but I would have liked it if they did this instead, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, and then, just, yeah, there, there are a lot of, like I said, online resources um, for people who love kind of that retro, um, uh, you know, 256 color, six, not 16 bit, but, you know, the, the uh, VGA graphics, that's what I'm looking for, VGA graphics style. There's a, a free uh, engine called Adventure Game Studio, which is, as you, the name implies, developed and designed to be able to make adventure games with it. Um, I haven't worked with it myself because we work in a, a different style than those, but I've played a lot of games made in that. And there are you know, a lot of really great ones out there and they have a pretty strong community uh, on their website and just online in general. And then like I said, Unity is also a great one, engine to use um, to you know, learn how to put things together. And but yeah, it's, it's a lot of, you know, like you said, learn the skills that you can see what else is out there so you once you know what's already been done and so you can see what you like and what you don't like uh, and what you feel you know not only that other people will respond to as players but what you respond to because I think I have definitely noticed and felt that the games that either you know I've worked on and really love or that you know I can see other developers you know really love the ones that you can tell people are passionate about they just they come out better for it Absolutely. And I think that holds true for almost any art or any industry where if you are more passionate about your work, you are going to do better work. Mm -hmm. And so it's such a shame that people think that they need to throw themselves into careers that they hate just because it makes a lot of money and then they end up being miserable and their work probably isn't that great (laughs) either. Yeah. Wow. So we have covered so much about Phoenix Online Studios and point and click adventures, especially your aspect of writing for these games. If you have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the other writing you do that is not for Phoenix Online Studios. Is that all right? Yes. Great. So you are a writer for 411mania.com. Your title is Contributing Writer, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Is that right? Yes. And 411mania.com, if I understand it, was originally a wrestling site. So are you covering all the latest takedowns between Dwayne the Rock Johnson and The Undertaker? <laughs> I am not. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it just, it, yeah, it started off as a wrestling site at, at some point in its history, um, you know, became kind of about media and popular movie and TVs and, uh, and games even in general. But uh, I mean, that was, that changeover happened well before I came into it. I've been writing recaps and reviews of TV shows for them for almost two years now, actually. And which TV shows are your beat? Uh, I do The Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, and I used to do Legends of Tomorrow. Oh, why don't you do Legends of Tomorrow anymore? Unfortunately, just that particular recaps weren't getting a lot of views, so. Oh, okay. It's not that you stopped watching the show. No, I kept watching the show, and actually, I, the show was, you know, getting a lot better finally towards the end. 
there are a lot of earlier reviews, especially season one, where I'm very much like, oh, it's doing this thing again, and I am so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so that's yeah, that's why that one fell off. But um, that's uh, Walking Dead and Fear of the Walking Dead. I'm still doing. I remember you and I had an exchange on Facebook where you were talking about season three of The Flash, and I was like, spoilers, and you said, Ken, this is six months old, and I'm I always watch my shows on DVD, so I'm always a year behind. <laughs> <laughs> So someday I'll catch up on Legends of Tomorrow. I have season one on DVD. I'll watch it, and then I'll go read all your recaps. <laughs> go for it. I, I'd be curious to hear what you say. It, it, um, if you're getting frustrated, it does get better in season two. <laughs> oh, good. So speaking of spoilers, I've also never seen a single episode of any Walking Dead series. So oh my goodness. Right. I don't <laughs> so know how. <laughs> yes, it's me. I've been the one living under a rock. <laughs> So for anybody listening who's in a similar boat, you don't have to worry about spoilers in this episode because I'm asking you, Katie, to not spoil it for me because it seems like the kind of show I might enjoy. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try real hard. <laughs> Thank you. But I am curious that this show has, as we mentioned, spanned multiple TV series. It originates in comic books. It has video games, which I'm not sure are based on the comic book or on the TV show or both. And there are also multiple developers, not only Telltale, but also Disruptor Beam Studios is working on one. How does this all tie in together? I mean, I know we've seen a lot of zombies in a lot of different studios lately, but are we just reaching peak Walking Dead? Are we going to be saturated with this stuff? As far as this particular franchise doing a whole bunch of things or just more zombies and and kind of copycats in general? We can't help the number of zombies that are in mainstream culture, unfortunately, but I feel like The Walking Dead makes up a significant portion, not only of zombie representation, but also the people who are trying to cash in on that popularity. Has The Walking Dead jumped the shark? Franchise? I don't think so. I mean, it's it's popular and became popular, I think, for a reason. Like, it, you know, there were a bunch of zombie movies and whatnot before it got popular. And I think the reason this became more popular is because it took, it, it examined, it wasn't just about, you know, people fighting zombies and there's an attack and then it's over and that's it. It was about people actually trying to live in this world now. And it was more about them than it was about zombies. Zombies were a plot device, you know. They're a very persistent one and an important one. But, you know, they... It's not just about like, oh, we're going to go kick some ass and that's it, which is fun, certainly, but it's not, you know, it, it's not something that's built for longevity. And I think that's, that's why it became so popular. I think that's why it stayed that way. And I think the different versions of it out there, they all kind of, they all bring something new and interesting to that collective idea of it. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of its own little uh, cinematic isn't quite the right word, but like cinematic universe. <laughs> of Walking Dead, because, yeah, there are a bunch of different assets of it. And I think the things that aren't as interesting tend to fall off the radar a lot, you know, so they they don't, don't tend to happen in such a big way that they detract from it. But it's kind of a, you know, people don't like that. You know, I know there's been a lot of mobile games, which do, I think, focus more on the, I'm going to, you know, just attack a bunch of zombies. And that's really what it's about. It's not really about the characters at all. And I don't, I mean, I mean to me, those don't, stand out as much and you know maybe they get more downloads and they're bought more i'm not sure but um i don't think they're the ones people talk about certainly when they're talking about the walking dead it's interesting to hear that we have not jumped the shark because i have not heard good things about the latest season of the main tv show people i know who have been watching it all along have said they're done and they're not going to watch it anymore huh interesting i mean it's you know it's say this without spoilers but there is uh 
uh, a big uh, event, big character who came into the TV show finally this past season, who was very highly anticipated from the comics. You know, he was his character was a big deal in the comics. This, their appearance basically kind of changed everything, changed a lot of things. So you know that finally happened in the TV show, which a lot of people were really anticipating a lot. So it's not surprising that it's been very divisive. You know, anything I think that gets highly anticipated like that is going to be, you know, you're never, you never please all the people all the time. It's just impossible to do because they all want different things. And so, plus the fact that the TV show, it'll change certain things from how they have happened in the comics. Like the, the broad strokes of the story are the same, but a lot of the details will change, which I think is interesting because it makes the TV show still interesting and still keeps some of the comic readers guessing because a few things are going to be different, you know, uh, you know, not the, not necessarily the same characters will live or die or the ones who, um, who do live when maybe they die in the comics become very different uh, and sort of start filling a different role. Or, you know, you have some original characters in the TV show that aren't in the comics at all that people absolutely love. So it's, um, it's interesting. And, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, like I said, I'm not, I'm not surprised it's just kind of been a, a dividing thing that what happens. I'm glad to hear the TV show has the creative license to deviate from the comic books. I wasn't really sure what the relationship was, but I do know that comic books in general don't always have an end game. They just sort of continue in perpetuity, like Superman or Wonder Woman, for example. They have arcs, but the overall character and comic book continues. That's not true for TV shows. What do you see as the end game for a TV show, which, unless you're The Simpsons or Gunsmoke, does end... (laughs) Uh-huh. when it's based on a comic book that does not end. Well, so the Walking Dead comic book is still going, and it's been going for a long time now, like probably at least 10 years, I'm sure. And uh, it's, it's, But it's a little different in that it is a continuing story. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's still, it's been like, you know, time like five years or something maybe has passed since it started, but it's still an ongoing story. So it's, it's different in that, like there is still material in there that the TV show could continue to follow up on. The current arc that is happening on the TV show was, I think, the the high point of the comics so far. Um, and they've had some interesting stuff happen since then. I haven't found it as interesting personally. So, but uh, you know, I'm curious. Obviously, the comics are still selling, so you know, it's not like it's bad. It's just I I found that 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 particular arc to be the most interesting, and it could have made a good place to you know. Um, if Robert Kirkman had wanted to be like, yep, this is a good spot. I'm going to leave it here. That would have been fine, I think. So I'm not sure plans about how long the TV show is, if there's a planned endpoint, if they're going to keep going with things, um, or if, you know, it'll just be, we're going to go until the ratings drop and uh, we're, we're no longer on top. So we decide we're going to cut our losses there. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I'm not sure how far they'll take that um, or if they'll just keep making it until, you know, the network says... No, thanks. We're done. <laughs> Another TV show I've never seen is Game of Thrones, but I do know that the TV show has already exhausted the source material. Where is the Walking Dead TV show in relation to the comic book? Has it caught up? No, no. It's um, the the TV show is is still um, a couple of arcs, major arcs behind where the the comics are now. It's it's a process of catching up. Like I'd say. Let me see. Um, like in terms of, if I try to like, I put this in terms of seasons. Like I would say the current arc will probably play out over the next season and, and conclude at the end of that because I don't, I can't see them stretching it past that. 
So the arc that the comics are in now is kind of the next major one. I could see it kind of getting to that maybe by the end of the next season, like starting that one up and having, you know, some things to build up to it in that meantime. I don't think they would jump into it right away because at least in the comics at that point, they had a a time jump that happened. So so if, if they kept going to where the comics are now, they'd have, you know, probably at least another two or three seasons they could get out of it. It's interesting that you work professionally in two very, well, I guess thematically related, but still very different manifestations of two areas, point-and-click adventure games and the Walking Dead zombie TV show. (laughs) And it's not every day that somebody works in two such different fields that have an intersection, the Walking Dead Telltale Games. It's a point-and-click adventure game. Yeah. I imagine that you have some very informed opinions about the many telltale games that have been made on The Walking Dead since you come from those two areas of expertise. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love the games. I've only played the first two seasons. I haven't played season three of their games yet, but I think they're they're fantastic. They're really well done. And in general, I think Telltale does a great job with their games. Um, you know, they know, they've kind of mastered a lot of how to like, get those certain beats of a story and kind of get you into a certain mindset, I think with the characters and, you know, make you care about the characters and then put them in danger or sort of make you assume certain things about characters and then find an interesting way to twist that um, through gameplay that really just involves you a lot. And the, uh, the games of note follow a completely different continuity entirely. They are entirely original characters. Technically it's set in the comic book universe as opposed to the show's universe. But all, but all the characters there, it's kind of in a, it's in a similar area geographically, but the, those crowds of people don't overlap with the exception of one character who is in the first episode of the first season. And I think they really just had him in there so it could be like, look, here's this guy that you all know and love and he's in our game. And now he's gone. So, <laughs> well, so there are characters who originate in the comic books and then show up in the TV show. Since the video games are based on the comic books, does that mean they might show up in the TV show? Uh, I have no idea. I'd be surprised because the TV show follows the comics so much and like the characters from the Telltale game aren't, they aren't in the comics. Oh. The the continuity of their world is the one from the comics. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's confusing. (laughs) It's sort of like Star Trek Prime and Star Trek Kelvin Universe. Um, In in the sense that it's confusing. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, those are terms that I know I've ever heard, but I forget exactly what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be even more complicated when Star Trek Discovery airs this fall. Yeah. So it's basically like, you know, your starting point is the comics, and then the TV show is kind of kind of a mirror of the comics, but it has, as I mentioned, continuity differences. And then the Telltale game is the same world as the comics, but it's sort of, you know, off here to the side in its own little bubble, and it doesn't intersect really with either of the other two. So if I wanted to get in on The Walking Dead, because I have not read any of the comics, not seen any of the TV show, I played the first episode of the first season of the first Telltale game. Mm -hmm. Where should I go from here? Well, since Ray played part of the first season of the game, I would say finish that up because it's really great. (laughs) So, you know, you started your buy in there, so why not keep going? Great. As far as the others, I mean, the TV show is probably going to be easier to access and get to than the comics. So as far as that, you know, and it might take up less time. I mean, it's, it's a comic book is a pretty quick read, granted, but there is, you know, a lot. They're an issue, you know, 
100 something or other now. <laughs> so there's a lot of back reading in the comics to get to. Uh, I mean, they're both worth getting into. I guess it just kind of depends on what your personal preferences of consuming media is. Uh, you don't have to, you know, have read the comics to enjoy the show. Plenty of people don't. <laughs> okay. And maybe after I do all that, I can start reading and watching Game of Thrones. There you go. Yes, that's a whole other one to get into. <laughs> Does 411 Mania have a beat writer for Game of Thrones? Yes, they uh, they have someone who, who um, does the recaps on those. Because I imagine that's also a show you're watching. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I read the books, and um, yeah, I've been watching the show since it started. And I'm actually in the middle of playing the Telltale game based on that as well. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. They made one. I forgot. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I think I just got it for free through PS Plus on my PS4. Nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I heard that it was free like this past weekend. We were kind of like, oh, you already bought that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that, too, can be my gateway into that world. I'll start playing the yeah. Telltale game. So that's another one where I, I think it's, I think their continuity is based on the books, although the continuities are a lot closer with the show and the books than that mm-hmm. uh, in Game of Thrones. But it's, again, a lot of, like, there are more overlap characters, but the main cast is, again, all people who are not in either the books or the show. Oh, okay. Just basically Telltale's way of kind of being like, we're going to play, we're going to be in your, in your sandbox, but we're just going to be over here in the corner that no one looks at, so we can do whatever we want. <laughs> Without messing everybody else up. Exactly. So I actually did read the first Game of Thrones book, but I found it more political and less fantastical than I like my fantasy novels. And That's so I just fair. never continued. <laughs> So I haven't read the rest. It keeps going like that. I mean, there's, it's like, it's technically high fantasy, I think, because, you know, it has some magic and dragons and whatnot. But yeah, a lot of what makes that world tick is kind of following the politics and the alliances and social manipulations and whatnot on top of, yes, also there is war. And over here in this continent, there are some dragons. Right. We'll get to them later. (laughs) And I do like high fantasy. I grew up reading and playing Dungeons and Dragons, The Forgotten Realms, Ari Salvatore. But what little TV I watch nowadays, it tends to be more uh, either Sherlock or The Flash. (laughs) I get all my intrigue and machinations from Sherlock, and I get all my... In a way, I guess you could say The Flash is high fantasy. (laughs) It's certainly not magic, although I guess... You know, I'm, you know what? I think there might be magicians. Uh, There's certainly a weather wand that one of the villains uses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Flash definitely too of the of the DC TV universe is the more lighthearted one. Legends of Tomorrow kind of fits into that category too. Actually, that's one of the things I think they had trouble with in their first season because they had characters from both the Flash universe and the um, Arrow universe. So it was like, all right, we've got like the really dark and broody ones, and then these much brighter, happier ones. So how do we make them all work together? But uh, so I think it took them a while to kind of get that tone down. Kind of like on Star Trek Voyager when they put Starfleet and the McKee together. Work with me here, Kat. Okay. <laughs> totally, yes. <laughs> See, just like that. So, All right. Well, we have covered so much. Point and click adventure games, the history and evolution of Phoenix Online Studios, and the silver lining. Telltale, The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, The Flash. Is there anything we're missing? Yeah, <laughs> I... I don't think so. That's, that, that covers like a lot of the things I love talking about. So. I know, me too. And we could, well, you know, what we're missing is more in-depth on all these topics. We could do a regular podcast on any of these. Oh, my uh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's not an idea there I needed. There's a ton of them out there. <laughs> Damn it. 
All right. So, but I, this has been fantastic. We have not chatted often enough. We had that pre-meeting to discuss our PAX East panel before it happened, and we met over pancakes, which was awesome. And then we actually had the panel, and now it's been two and a half years, and I can't remember the last time our paths crossed. So this has been great. Yes, it has. It's been very fun. Thank you. <laughs> Do you show up at other Boston-based events? I remember, I think the very first time I met you was at Boston Fig. Is that something you go to regularly? Um, I try to. I, I don't think I went in this past year. Or do I think maybe I went to the, I did actually end up going, I think, past year to the, the demo one. I haven't been to their panels only uh, half of the convention that they do like a couple months later. Right. Um, which is an interesting split, but I'm also like, oh, but it's a whole other different time. And I think it fell in the same weekend as something else I was doing when I actually found out that was going on. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I try to get to those events. Um, I've, uh, the last couple of years, I've been going to Arisia, which happens in January in Boston, and that's been a lot of fun and really a different kind of convention. I don't know if you've ever been to that one. I actually went to my first Aresia just this year. Yeah, it's fun, isn't it? (laughs) It sure is, and of course, just like at PAX, the talent and artistry of the people who not only are giving panels, but also showing up in costumes is amazing. Yes, (laughs) yes. Excellent. So I'll include a link to Aresia, Phoenix Online Studios, The Silver Lining, your 411 Mania stuff. All of that will be online in the show notes for this episode, which can be found at polygamer.net, or the direct link will be plyg.me slash POS for Phoenix Online Studios. Katie, thank you so much for your time. This has been a blast. Thank you. This has been a great time. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. If you can pause for just a moment, I need to take some bread out of the oven. Sure. Thank you. Go for right it. back. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Now my house won't burn down. Yay. <laughs> Everyone wins. <laughs> right. Another successful podcast. <laughs> Whew.